Welcome, everybody, to the Battle of Gettysburg podcast. I am your co-host, licensed battlefield guide Eric Lindblade, and we are coming to you live from the Reliance Mine Saloon in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. I am joined, as always, by my co-host, licensed battlefield guide Jim Hessler. And today, Jim, we have a very special guest on what will be a bonus episode of the podcast. Eric, I am so excited today. I can barely contain myself. I am I am almost falling off of my seat here at the, at the bar of the Reliance Mine. This, folks, is a bonus episode special guest Wayne Motts is in the studio tonight probably many of you know Wayne he has been a licensed battlefield guide since 1988 he is the CEO of the National Civil War Museum in Harrisburg Pennsylvania and not coincidentally in addition to being a good friend of mine Wayne is the co-author of a book that we did together in 2015 Pickett's Charge at Gettysburg but prior to that Wayne in 1994 I think also published his own biography of General Lewis Armstead. And so, man, we got a lot of stuff to talk about with Wayne today. Wayne, welcome to the Battle of Gettysburg podcast. Thanks a lot, Eric. Uh, thanks a lot, Jim. Just an honor to be with you here this evening and happy to talk about Lewis Armstead. So, Wayne, a lot of our listeners might be familiar with you, but for those who are not, tell us a little bit about your background. How did you get involved in history and the Battle of Gettysburg? And then ultimately, what led you to Pickett's Charge and General Armstead? Well, Jim, I'm, I'm one of those hard luck cases, I think is the best way to describe it. So I grew up in central Ohio. I'm a native Buckeye uh, near Columbus. My parents founded a military museum when I was a young man. It's called Mott's Military Museum. And so I took things to show and tell that I tell everybody you'd be jailed for today. Homeland Security would arrest you uh, for taking bullets, bayonets, and other things like this to school. Very interested in that. I went to High State University, uh, majored in military history there. And while I was a student there, the assistant editor of Blue and the Gray magazine, which was published in Columbus, Ohio, came to me and said, Wayne, how would you like to have your first article published? Pick a subject related to the Battle of Gettysburg, because we're going to do a special issue, and a biography, a person, just a little outlining article, and we'll get it published for you. And so I did some research, and I'm looking into some scanning. We didn't Google it back in those days, but something like that. I went to the uh, Ohio State University Library and punched in some names. I remember Richard Garnett was one of those names. I remember Louis Armstead was one of those names. And I was just amazed that this Confederate officer who was killed at the height of one of the greatest charges uh, in American history. No one had really written a biography about him. So I picked Lewis Armstead, did a little 2,000-word article for Blue and the Gray magazines published in 1988, and that was the same year I became a battlefield guide 31 years ago. So uh, had a lot of interest. I've been interested in Armstead my whole adult life, basically, and picking up little pieces here or there before 1994. So I researched 88 to 94 before I wrote that. And then afterwards, all these years, I've kind of been just picking off little pieces related to Armstead, but no one had ever written about him, and I could quickly see the reason why, because he doesn't have a cache of personal papers where we can go to a university library and say, here's a hundred different letters or two hundred different letters. It was very difficult to sort of piece him together. So it's taken an awful long time to get a a wraparound history, I guess you could say, uh, about him. So Wayne, on a personal note, a lot of people know I grew up in eastern North Carolina, about 25 miles east of Newburn, North Carolina, where Lewis Armstead's born. So I've always had an interest in him, and I often joke on tours that it took a native-born North Carolinian to lead all those Virginians over the wall, uh, which almost got me kicked out of a roundtable in Fredericksburg, Virginia once, but that's a whole other story altogether. But could you tell us a little bit about Armistead's life in eastern North Carolina, or at least the early period when he was born there, and a little bit about his family? Sure, I'll be happy to, and I think he would laugh at that too, what you just uh, what you just mentioned about his background. So Armstead's father was a native Virginian, but his mother, Elizabeth Stanley, uh, was a native North Carolinian, and so 
also, when Louis Armstead was born in 1817, his father was working on an engineering project in the Chesapeake Bay. So he sent his wife to her parents' home, which was in New Bern, because she was pregnant to have that child. So this is the reason why Louis Armstead was born there in New Bern. He was, been, he was born in the house of John Wright Stanley Jr., who was his grandfather, a person of very good note or very well-recognized person from New Bern, North Carolina. So the family, Armstead's mother's family, very well-connected, very well-recognized there. He did not spend very long there before he went back to Virginia because in 1818, his father bought a farm about 45 miles west of Washington, D.C. in Fauquier County, Virginia. So I think Armstead, if he was with us today, he would definitely be very proud of his North Carolina heritage, uh, Eric, but I don't think he would consider himself a North Carolinian. I think he would consider himself a Virginian, probably. And so I'm sitting here listening to the banter between you guys, and I've got this image of pre-war Lindblades rubbing elbows with the pre-war Armisteds. Like, like imagine what that would have been like. I'm like, my mind is being blown here. And I should note that if you are ever in the Newburn, North Carolina area, if you go to Tryon Palace, which is a state historic site there, it was the colonial capital of North Carolina before the War of Independence, you can actually tour the house that Louis Armistead was born in. It's the Stanley House, has a lot of very interesting history. George Washington visited the home during his southern tour in the 1790s, and it's of course going to be the home that a future Confederate Brigadier General that we all know and love was born in. But no colonial Lindblade connections? No, and actually, fun fact, it would all have been Clayton's. It's my mother's the son. Clayton's. The Clayton's. Oh, the Clayton's. Family was still in Sweden at this there time. There you go. I thought they were in Cleveland. I'm confused. All right, we'll keep going. What, one day we'll do an entire yeah. biographical there, essay there, there on me. How about there you that. go. There you go. All right. So, Wayne, tell us a little bit more then about Armistead's earlier life, uh, his, his early career. How did he get into the Army? And then ultimately what led to him meeting a young Winfield S. Hancock? So Armstead's born February 18, 1817 in New Bern. His father buys this farm in Fauquier County, Virginia, and that's where Armstead is reared in Fauquier County, Virginia. When he's very young in 1831, he actually goes and attends Georgetown University. Part of his family had attended Georgetown. He was baptized a Catholic at Georgetown University, and this was really in preparation to send him to West Point. It was always in the scheme, I think, from his father's standpoint and from his standpoint to go to West Point. So he gets an appointment to West Point, in 1833, and he's very poorly prepared there. He gets sick, and he's academically not ready to go to the military academy. He gets set back a year. He spends 22 months at the military academy, and he never gets out of the plebe year. And in 1836, in an altercation with future Confederate General Jubal Early, he smashes a plate over Early's head, and he actually resigns. Now, the books have that he is dismissed, or he's forced to resign. Neither of those are true. He is not dismissed from the military academy, and he's not forced to resign. But he realizes that if he doesn't resign, he's going to be court-martialed and his chances of getting a military commission at any time are not going to be very good. And in 1839, which would have been when his class graduates, his class would have graduated on July 1st, 1839, he got a commission July 10th, 1839. Direct commission because his father was a general in the Army and guess what? His uncle was a United States congressman from the state of North Carolina. So that's Edward Stanley. So he spends early life there in the Army, 1839, and in 18. 1844, he gets sent out to Oklahoma, and this is where he first meets Winfield Scott Hancock in October of 1844. They're both stationed at the same post together, which is Fort Towson, Oklahoma, on the Arkansas River. Okay, Wayne, so then before we get more into the Hancock stuff, just to backpedal for a little bit, the whole episode with him breaking the plate over Jubal Early's head, I have, over the course of the years, occasionally seen people questioning the veracity of that account. What do we really know? What do we know about that? What sources are there? Anything more you can tell us about that? 
So first of all, I think the earliest published source of that is Walter Harrison's Pickett's Men, A Fragment War History, which was published in 1870. Walter Harrison was General Pickett's chief of staff, so to speak, here at Gettysburg. And he mentions this incident of when this book is published. So this is, you know, six years after Pickett's Charge. It's basically a source. A primary might be the wrong word, but he's there with Armstead. He understands this. There are records that Lewis Armstead was placed under arrest for disorderly conduct in the mess hall in January of 1836. He he is fined for mess damage at this at this exact time. And when his brother gets appointed to West Point and the Secretary of War reject the fact that his brother is getting an appointment because they said, well, he already has a brother, Louis Armstead, who's a graduate from West Point. And the family has to write to the War Department and say, no, I'm sorry, that's not accurate. General Armstead, or at that time he would have been, I think, a captain, brevet major, left the academy after a boyish frolic. Those were the exact words used in it. So I don't think there's any question that this actually happened. We've got the arrest records. We've got Walter Harrison's recollection. We've got we've got primary source material from his brother trying to get uh, into West Point. So I think it's pretty clear this incident did happen. We just don't know what uh, Jubal Early said to Lewis Armstead right. to prompt this incident. I think from now on on tours, whenever I talk about Jubal Early, I think I'm going to talk about the boyish frolic. <laughs> with Lewis Armistead at uh, West Point. I think that'll be a crowd pleaser in future tours. Good stuff. Good stuff on Jubal Early. So back to Armstead and Hancock. So you said, I think they met in Oklahoma in 1844. Anything more you want to tell us about that? And you know, and again, I'm thinking to some, it may be the most famous bromance of the American Civil War perpetuated in large part because of the Killer Angels and the movie Gettysburg, which in recent years has created something of a backlash over whether or not these two guys really knew each other or whether they were friends. Well, you know, what's your take? Again, thinking about what sources do we have? What documentation? What do we know sort of about their initial years together? So I used to have a friend, Jim, that used to say somewhere between a hook and a slice is the fairway. <laughs> I think when you look at these sources, we have a tendency to either discount everything or accept everything. We don't have all the answers related to Armstead and Hancock. I think it would not be wise for us to say that they were not friends, but I believe without a doubt these these men are friends, and I think they were very good friends, and the problem over the years is how we define what that friendship yeah. looks like. It's certainly not a 20th century, 21st century, huggy-feely type relationship between these two men, but they got along, I think, very well because they're very similar in personality. Neither of them were very well liked. They were very strict disciplinarians. They're in the U.S. regular army where desertion and discipline problems are pretty rampant. Armstead is five years commissioned ahead of Hancock, so let's remember, Hancock graduates in 1840 from West Point. He's a second lieutenant. Armstead becomes a first lieutenant in 1844. So Armstead is the senior man. These men did not go to West Point together. They did not. They weren't in the same graduating class. They're in the same regiment, the 6th Infantry. Armstead is in one company. Hancock is in another. And they spend quite a long period of time together. Then there's a break where Armstead is recruiting. Hancock is doing some things. And they go to the Mexican War. And they fight in the same regiment in the same set of battles in the Mexican War. They see each other every day. And at one time, Armstead Armstead becomes the commanding officer of Company F, 6th Infantry. And who are the two lieutenants in his command? Winfield Scott Hancock and Henry Heath. And they're with each other every day for a considerable amount of time. So there's separation because they're in different companies and different parts of the service, but they do spend a considerable amount of time together all the way up to the eve of the American Civil War. 
So Wayne, you mentioned Heath's memoirs, or Heath, as some folks prefer. I guess I've always said Heath, but anyways. So you've mentioned Heath's memoirs, talking about the relationship between these three guys. I have read that passage, but frankly, it's been a number of years since I've read it. What did Heath say about their relationship, or what did he not say about it? So he basically says never was there a happier mess than their mess that they had in the Mexican War. And he mentions that Hancock and Heath would tease Armstead as the older, right. <laughs> slightly older officer. Now, Armstead and, and Henry Heath were cousins. They were they had married into family. So I think, and Eric can make a joke about this, right? They're, all these families are interrelated. It's somehow. a Virginia thing. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a Virginia thing. So we have some primary documentation for the friendship. What we really don't have is we don't have letters from Louis Armstead to Hancock or Hancock or vice versa. Uh, Armstead didn't write a lot of people anyway. The letters he did have probably burned up in a fire of his home. The family home burned up in 1852. So just because we don't have that type of evidence doesn't mean there isn't other evidence. Once again, I think they do have a very close relationship. The definition of that is open for discussion, I think. But to say that they weren't friends is not accurate. To say they were good friends, I think, is accurate. We just don't understand the depth of where that is. And I should add, Henry Heath's memoirs, if you can get a copy of it, it's one of the best memoirs of that era written by a Confederate general. Unfortunately, Heath spends a lot of time in his pre-Civil War career, a lot of great stories, a lot of famous individuals we'll see later. He doesn't give as much attention to the wartime efforts, but this is also in this memoir where, of course, he doubles down on this whole shoe thing at Gettysburg on July 1st. So for a lot of our listeners, if you ever want to know where the shoe thing comes from, this is one part of perpetuating that myth, but it's a great memoir, and you'll Mm -hmm. see a lot of familiar faces if you give it a chance to read. This memoir was edited by a man named James Morrison. Morrison also wrote a book called The Best School in the World about West Point between 1833 and 1866. So these are a couple books that if you're interested in what shaped these young men coming in to the American Civil War, you should definitely have. And the memoirs of Henry Heath is going to be one of them. I think there's, Eric, if I remember correctly, there's a great passage in there where he gets promoted to be an officer in the 10th Infantry. This was created in 1855 and Secretary of War was Jefferson Davis. And Davis virtually handpicked all of these new members of the first and Second United States Cavalry, the 9th and 10th Infantry Regiments are commissioned, and Heath ends up getting a commission, and he says, I don't even know who the Secretary of War, I've never met him. <laughs> he mentions, I don't, and apparently Davis, you know, controls all these appointments, so somebody must have thought highly of Henry Heath, because he ends up getting one of these promotions, while a lot of the Army officers in the Army see opportunity, and uh, there's people commissioned from civilian life, and then there's additional commissions in the Army. Everybody's vying for promotion, and Henry Heath gets one, and he says, I'm not sure exactly why. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm getting one of these. I do believe that Morrison actually taught at VMI, which says a lot, you know, greatest school in the world, West Point. And you're at VMI. I wonder if you got a little heat at some uh, on-school, on-campus uh, book signings there. Maybe a boyish frolic or two. Somebody got a plate broken over the head. Who knows, but I do know another fine graduate of the Virginia Military Institute, speaking of boyish frolics, the boy colonel, Henry Berguin Jr. Episode for another time. So, Jim and Eric, we should add that this story about the friendship of Lewis Armstead and Winfield Scott Hancock can be traced back. Most of it goes back to W.S. Hancock, which was written by Elmira Hancock. She published this book in 1887. Let's remember the general died in 1886. So the me- this is really a recollection of Elmira Hancock, the wife of Winfield Scott Hancock. And in 1952, historian and author Bruce Catton, in his Army of the Potomac series, the volume called Glory, Road, which includes Gettysburg, mentions this 
party, this gathering, party's the wrong word, gathering that they had in Los Angeles, California. So where does this history come from Michael Shaw in 1974 when he writes Killer Angels, Ken Burns, all the different things in the 20th century that we think about? Most of it is traced directly back to 1952 to Bruce Catton's Glory Road. And you know, Wayne, you and I have, as Battlefield Guides and co-authors of the Pickett's Charge book, we have done many Pickett's Charge programs together over the years. And what I always find interesting is when we quote the Elmira Hancock recollection of that party, as she records it, Armstead basically says to the effect, you know, when, you know, so God, strike me dead if I'm ever induced to leave my native soil, which is the quote that she uses. And of course, in Sharon, Killer Angels, that gets transferred into, you know, may God strike me dead if I ever raise my hand against you. And so the actual quote is very different than what has been popularized in the Killer Angels in the movie Gettysburg. And I think when we give battlefield tours and programs of that, I find people are often surprised by that. When Bruce Catton was talking about the party, did he go into much detail on that or what what did he have to say? Well, Jim, first of all, there's a lot of controversy about whether this gathering actually happened. Yeah, right, there have right. been a number of, of folks that have tried to say it did not happen. I'm not one of those. I think the evidence suggests that the people that Mrs. Hancock mentioned, she mentions there were six resigned officers, but she does not tell us who all those people are. We only know two of those, Albert Sidney Johnston and Lewis Armstead. And can we put Albert Sidney Johnston, Lewis Armstead, and Hancock in the city of Los Angeles in the spring of 1861 together? And there's at least two dates we can do that. In May of 1861, not in June when we when everybody thinks that might have happened. Could she have recollected it incorrectly? Yes, she could have. There's still a bunch of people that go down that think that this didn't happen. I'm not one of those because three of the six resigned officers died in front of Hancock's troops. That's what she says. Armstead is one of these people. Of course, Albert Sidney Johnson dies as well. There's also another source which people miss in 1880. It's not a primary source, but it was a published biography by a man named Reverend Junkin. It's got two authors but Junkin's the one that we'll reference here. And it was published in 1880 when Hancock is running for president of the United States. And it mentions this gathering, and it says in the work that Winfield Scott Hancock is giving the author the details of this. So while it's not quite primary, this stuff is recorded, and Winfield Scott Hancock never says it didn't happen. Also, there is a letter written in 1869 from Henry Bingham of General Hancock's staff, and he is writing General Hancock after the war describing this wounding of Armstead, and it's pretty clear from this letter that's written right at the beginning of 1869 that he's writing because Hancock has written him and is asking him these particular details. So there's a lot of things that go on that are going on there. Bruce Catton takes this almost directly from the reminiscences of W.S. Hancock, which is Elmira Hancock's recollections. There's no other deep recollection to it there. I'm one of those that the evidence, I think, shows that it could have happened, but there are a lot of people that want to say, nah, it really didn't happen. There's also other evidence for Armstead and Hancock's relationship. There's a letter written in 1845 from another officer. Well, it's actually Armstead writes it to another officer, and Hancock endorses the back of it. It looks like they had a, a pet bear at Fort Towson, Oklahoma, and it describes this, this, this bear breaking loose. And Armstead is writing the letter, and the P.S. is written in Hancock's own hand on the back of it. So we know these men are together. Now, Armstead got married in 1844, so I'm not sure. Hancock doesn't get married till 1850. So while they're out on this post, Armstead's wife is with him. So I don't know if they're in adjacent barracks, but Armstead is living with the married officers. Hancock would have been with the single officers. 
And not to interrupt, but the story about the bear reminds me that we have not done our special edition of the Dan Sickles report. So I would point out Dan Sickles, too, was an animal lover, and he had a dog named Bobo. And that is today's edition of the Dan Sickles report. Back to you, Wayne. And Jim just said something a little earlier that reminded me of, we have this popular image of Armistead saying, you know, strike me dead if I ever raise my hand against my native land. And there are some accounts that after he's wounded here on July 3rd, that he is apologizing. Some say to Hancock for potentially wounding him for his men, or is he apologizing for serving in the Confederate Army, which doesn't always jive well with some of the statements he maybe set out the Spangler farm where he pulls out some parched corn from his jacket and says, you know, any army that can live off this cannot be defeated. So it's sometimes hard when we look at one account saying, is he an ardent patriot or is he an ardent Confederate? Who knows? But I think it is interesting when we look at some of these accounts in Armistead's life and how they kind of play out. So Eric, let's just say he's a torn man. He's a torn man. And that's, let me give you some context for this. So in 1859, Armstead is on leave back home in Fauquier County, Virginia. Guess who his neighbor is? At Wolf Craig, the estate there, Turner Ashby. Turner Ashby is Armstead's neighbor. And he goes over to, to, to see Turner Ashby. And Ashby mentions, because this is after John Brown's raid in October 1859. And Armstead's on leave in the East. And he said, there's going to be a war. And Armstead said, I sure hope not. And he started singing the Star Spangled Banner. And he asked Turner Ashby to join with him while they sang the Star Spangled Banner together. The Star Spangled Banner that is on display at the National Museum of American History is from the Armstead family. Louis Armstead's uncle defended Fort McHenry. That flag was placed on loan there in 1907. It was given to the people of the United States, to the Smithsonian in 1912, because Armstead's family preserved it. So when you're Louis Armstead and you're looking about whether you go with the North or the South, you are a torn man. Your whole life has been in military service. Your family is wrapped up with the Star Spangled Banner in this flag. So I don't I don't want to underestimate this choice that Armstead has to make. He says that he was a poor man and he writes a letter that says he never had much, but he believed that his people were right and they were oppressed. Those were, and you can read into that whatever you feel, but that's the reason why he says that he goes with the Confederacy. These quotes about if God will strike me dead, if I'm ever induced to leave my native soil, this is what Mrs. Hancock says. But then Henry Bingham says when Armstead is lying on the ground wounded here at Gettysburg on July 3rd, he says that I've done him and you all a great injury. So this is where it sort of gets repeated. Then he gets hauled out to the Spangler farm. And as you mentioned, Eric, he reaches into his pants and he says, men who could subsist on raw corn can never be whipped. So Armstead was never broken in spirit. He was broken in physical body. I don't think he ever regretted for a minute serving with the Confederacy, but he has to go against his friends. And Armstead doesn't have a lot of friends because he's a very strict disciplinarian. And his circle is very, very small. He's a widower twice over, does have a son, which we'll talk more a little more about, who's with him here in the Battle of Gettysburg. But I think he's a torn man, like many that have to face that choice in 1861. So Wayne, as we touch on Armstead's service during the Battle of Gettysburg and obviously his subsequent death here, let's backtrack again a little bit and just tell us during the American Civil War, what kind of officer was Lewis Armstead? Tell us some stories. So unbeknownst to a lot of people, his first commission is as major, and it's a major in the Texas Brigade. He actually becomes a major in one of the regiments in the Texas Brigade. He doesn't command with those men. He becomes Colonel of the 57th Virginia, and on April 1st, 1862, he's promoted to Brigadier General and given a brigade command, and that brigade command is on the peninsula. He fights at the Battle of Malvern Hill, and one of the soldiers makes an observation that General Armstead was drinking there. He was behind a poplar tree, and he gets a nickname, the Poplar General. 
troops tended to like him in the sense that he wanted to take care of them. So there's a great quote of when he was Colonel of 57th Virginia, when Armstead came to the hospital, he saw all the men lying on the ground. He told the doctor, he said, I want all these men in a bunk when I come back here later on today. And one of the troops said that the general made sure all the men were well taken care of. So the troops respected him. They liked him, the fact that he would take care of those men and as a commanding general. So I think this Poplar general is an isolated case. He is known as being a very strict disciplinarian. One officer here at Gettysburg said he was no carpet knight, no holiday soldier. So he's not a man you want to take to a party and have with you. But if you're in battle, he's a, he's a general that you want to have with him. And throughout 1862, he's in these combat actions on the peninsula. When Robert E. Lee is looking for an officer during the Sharpsburg campaign, since we're talking Confederates here, right? During the Sharpsburg or Antietam campaign, he wants to find a person he can make the provost marshal because he's got a lot of straggling. Of all the brigades in the army, all the ones that Lee has to choose from, which brigade, which general does he choose to be the provost marshal of the army? He chooses Lewis Armstead. Why? Because Armstead is known in the old army, in the regular army, for being a very, very strict disciplinarian. And I think Lee understands that. It doesn't help very much because there's a lot of straggling in Lee's army. But of the one general he could choose, he chooses the one that he knows might be able to, to curtail some of that straggling. So we've talked a little bit about Armistead the general. How would you rate him as a commander? Because I think for a lot of folks that look at the Battle of Gettysburg, we tend to view him as a great general because of what he does here at Gettysburg, going over the wall, the popular image. Does that image that many have bear out with some of his previous experiences in combat command up to Gettysburg? He had a horse killed out from underneath him at the Battle of Seven Pines. So Armstead was always out in front. He always volunteered for the most dangerous missions. He does this in the Mexican War, fights um, in the Civil War. He always believed that bravery in combat was the single most important characteristic that an officer could have. And in the regular army, he believed that. He believes it in the Confederate service. He never was very good at paperwork. He never kept his accounts straight. <laughs> but he didn't. Ma- he didn't. It, that didn't matter to him. You know what mattered to him was whether or not he was out in front where his troops were. And so the troops, I think, respected that. I don't think he would fit high on the list of innovative commanders, tactical geniuses. He was a mid-level, foul orders commander, and I think he was very good at that. He never commands a division in the war, even temporarily, and he was not well politically connected. Yeah, he came from powerful families, but it's interesting that he married into a Whig family, so I know that his families were Whigs, whereas most of the army, of course, were Democrats. And Armstead's own politics, I don't know very well, but I do know he married into a Whig family. So I'm not so sure that people are looking at him to promote friends or people that are politically connected. And Armstead would have shied away from that. He never liked having political things. He thought first and foremost being a soldier. So, Wayne, what do we know about Armstead's relationship with Longstreet? And again, you know, much of that is framed by those of us who have seen the movie Gettysburg a thousand times or so, where Armstead repeatedly is walking into Longstreet's tent, weeping, unburdening himself on Longstreet's shoulder. Of course, that's the Hollywood version of it. But what do we know about the real relationship, if anything, that those two guys might have had? Let me set some background for you too, Jim. So I'm in my apartment on Baltimore Street in 1992, and I went home from guiding to go to lunch. Phone rings. I pick up the phone, and the person on the other end of the phone says, is this Wayne Motts? I said, yeah, it's Wayne Motts. He said, hey, this is Richard Jordan, and I'm playing Lewis Armstead in this movie, and I was told to call you, that you, you would have some information for me. And I told him, I said, look, you got to look old. <laughs> 
<laughs> you got to be bald. That's what I told him. And I said, you got to play him tough because Armstead had very few friends. And I remember Richard Jordan. I love Richard Jordan as an actor. I've seen one of my favorite movies as a kid, sci-fi, Logan's Run. He plays in that in that movie. And Richard Jordan was a Harvard-trained actor. I mean, wonderful actor. I said, you need to play Armstead tough. He tells me on the phone, Wayne, I want to play him like he has a heart. And I, I told him, I said, he did, but not in front of the men. <laughs> That's where we need to be. The impression you got in the movie, I think Richard Jordan, the way that script was written, and I've seen a copy of the script, was perfect. And I think he did an outstanding job there. But much of that is not really the way that that went down or occurred. So when you see the scene in the movie where Armstead goes into the tent with Longstreet and he hands Longstreet this package, this is the package he gave Mrs. Hancock at this gathering in Los Angeles, California, which were small items that were to be returned to his family if he died in the war. And then there was a little prayer book that said trust in God and fear nothing. It was an Episcopal prayer book and that went to Mrs. Hancock. So that scene, Jim, that you saw really didn't happen. Now that didn't mean that Armstead doesn't know Longstreet because he does. Let's remember Pickett is in the 8th Infantry in the Mexican War. Longstreet's in the 8th Infantry in the Mexican War. Armstead would have known those men very well. They served in the same brigade together. So he would have known these people. Others also, Edward Johnson here on Culp's Hills in the 6th Infantry. Simon Buckner is in the 6th Infantry. These are people we all know. And another one that a lot of people don't think about in the skirmishers at Chapultepec, where Armstead is one of the first men in a ditch there, James Archer. Archer commands troops that are, are there. So Burkett Fry, who's here at Gettysburg. So these men in Pickett's Charge that we've talked about, they have a common grouping there. So Armstead would have known Longstreet, no doubt about it, uh, would have known Pickett. But this scene that you see, we don't have evidence that that occurred. Yeah, that was a great story, Wayne, and it's one you've told me many times, and I'm glad we were uh, able to share it with the listeners. So obviously, not to get too off topic here, but Richard Jordan had a full head of hair, and as we know, Armistead didn't quite match that, so the physical resemblance wasn't quite there. Did you guys talk about that at all on the phone? Yeah, Jim, we did. I actually sent a 16 by 20 image out to the movie set because I had some friends that were movie advisors and asked them to give that to Richard Jordan. I hope it made it out there. I'm not sure it did. Armstead was 46 when he died here at Gettysburg. So he looked relatively old, but actor Pat Falsey, who plays A.P. Hill in the movie, has told me many times that he and Richard Jordan, Ron Maxwell, they sat together and they talked about this. So Richard Jordan was always to play Armstead and they had tried to get him to wear a skull cap to look bald, try to look older. Apparently they were working on trying to do some of those things. Richard Jordan wanted some certain things set the way that he wanted. So I know there was some discussion, Jim, about what he ought to look like. Now, Richard Jordan was, I forget his age when he played Armstead, but but he would have been an older man, as Armstead would have been at that time. So there's a, there's a, the jury's out on how all that went down, and perhaps we could get a recollection of it somewhere else. Now there's a great what if in the movie Gettysburg. What if they had used the skull cap? Because we all know they did such a bang up job on the beards. Yeah, that, that, that that's what I'm thinking with the beards. I can't imagine what a skull cap would have looked like. Maybe it was just as well that they uh, gave him the full head of hair. So Wayne, I think when we co-authored our, our 2015 Pickett's Charge book, which I personally, I'm, I'm really proud of that book. I think we came up with a lot of great stories in that. I'll say it on the air. I don't quite feel like that book ever got the publicity that it deserved because I'm enormously proud of our Pickett's Charge book and, and there's some great stories in there. And I think one of the things, perhaps the most surprising thing that came out to a lot of readers was the presence of Walker Keith Armstead, Lewis's son at the Battle of Gettysburg. Now, I know you touched on it in your 1994 biography, but I think then you supplemented 
recommended it with a little additional research that we then used in the uh, 2015 book. And I think to this day, that was one of the things that really surprised a lot of the readers who didn't realize that he had a son here at uh, Gettysburg. So you want to tell us a little bit about Walker Keith? So, Jim, first of all, let me just say I was honored to work with you on the Pickett's Charge book. I'm very proud of it, too. Everything that we did, I tell everyone, if you want to get a project done, just work with you <laughs> because the stuff gets done. I'd work with you anytime on these things, and I, I think it was just a wonderful package put together. Of course, one of the things you know I'm most proud of is, is the stories that we put together in there. And Walker Keith Armstead, the son of Lewis Addison Armstead, is someone that we don't know an awful lot about. So he was born in 1844. He was 18 years old here in the Battle of Gettysburg. He's a first lieutenant uh, and an aide-de-camp on Armstead staff. He's the only biological child of Lewis Armstead to live to adulthood. And when I wrote this biography on, on Lewis Armstead in 1994, I did not have the information we had in 2015. So when we put this together in 2015, we had an account of a courier from William Nelson Pendleton that actually had Walker Keith Armstead with Lewis Armstead in Pickett's charge. I didn't have an account that actually put him there going forward in Pickett's charge. Now we have that, which is a primary source. So we know he's in that attack. We know he survives it. We know in 1871, 1872, forget the exact date, he marries the granddaughter of Daniel Webster and he dies in 1896 and he's actually buried in Newport, Rhode Island. He died in his 50s, a pretty young man. But there's an interesting account of him being right there at Pickett's Charge and being seen with his father going forward on July 3rd, 1863. Armstead's son was in military service. Armstead's grandson was in military service. Armstead's great-grandson was in military service. Armstead's great-grandson was on a B-17 crew in World War II. So his grandson would have been in Spanish-American War in World War I. His great-grandson in World War II. So as we've sort of moved to the Battle of Gettysburg, I think the image most people have of Lewis Armistead in their head is that moment on July 3rd in the afternoon as they're about to hit the angle. He's got his hat through the sword. He's leading his men over the wall, breaking the angle. Wayne, could you tell us a little bit about those moments, his wound, and ultimately his death uh, as a result of that? Yeah, that's the iconic vision everyone has of Lewis Armstead. His hat on his sword, crossing the stone wall, penetrating Union lines on July 3rd, 1863, in the famed Pickett's Charge. He is mortally wounded there. He's shot in the arm and in the leg, and he is carried back to the George Spangler Farm, which is the 11th Union Army Corps hospital there. He suffers badly there from July 3rd until July 5th, 1863 there. Neither of these wounds were to be mortal. We do have the recollection of Dr. Daniel Brick. Britain. Britain was one of the important surgeons out at the George Spangler farm. He said that Armstead was probably wounded in the left leg down below the kneecap and in the opposite side of the body, the arm, the right portion of his arm. And these wounds did not cut an artery, did not cut a vein, did not hit a bone. So you'd expect that Armstead would survive these wounds. So I've had numerous doctors look over this case. I spent a great deal of time studying what might have killed Lewis Armstead. He dies within 48 hours of his wound. So he doesn't die of infection. There's no doubt about that. So probably what kills him is a pulmonary embolism. This is a blood clot that goes from his leg into his lung and suffocates him to death. The surgeon says that he was astounded that Armstead died, that he really thought Armstead was going to recover. So this is a catastrophic event. It's an event that happens very quickly. And so it looks like a pulmonary embolism is what kills Lewis Armstead. He is buried at the George Spanger farm. He is dug up about a month later. His body is topically embalmed because it's been decomposed. And then it's 
put on a railroad train in October in a sealed coffin in 1863, and it's sent to Baltimore, Maryland. And today, Louis Armstead's body is in Old St. Paul Cemetery in Baltimore, Maryland. He is in the same family crypt as his famous uncle, George Armstead, who defended Fort McHenry. So for a lot of visitors to the battlefield, one of the places we would say is a must-stop is the angle where this breakthrough is going to take place. And many will notice right by Alonzo Cushing's battery is a wounding marker to Louis Armistead. Sometimes you'll see a Virginia flag or a Confederate flag placed in front of it. Wayne, do you think that's the approximate area where he's wounded, or do you think it might be a little closer to the wall? What's your thoughts on where the wounding took place? Well, what's interesting is, for the context of that memorial, Armistead's family wanted to have a monument put up to him very early, and the Gettysburg Battlefield Memorial Association said no. Eventually what happens is that the survivors of the 72nd Pennsylvania and the GB BMA, they're the ones are, that put up the marker. So the survivors of the 72nd Pennsylvania and the Gettysburg Battlefield Memorial Association put up a marker up there in 1888. And why do they want to do that? Because they want to show how close the Confederates got inside the lines. There's an account in the testimony for the 72nd where John Batchelder, our government historian here at Gettysburg, was walking around out there and said, did anybody see Lewis Armstead fall? One man said, yeah, I did. And apparently Batchelder said, where was that? And he points it out and then Batchelder's driving a stake into the ground over there. So this is an eyewitness witness from the Union Army. How did he know that was Lewis Armstead? I don't know. I tend to believe that Armstead fell closer to the wall because he fell up against one of the two guns, which we believe two guns, up against the stone wall where Alonzo Cushing falls. So I think Armstead probably fell closer to the wall. But once again, Wayne Motts wasn't here <laughs> at the Battle of Gettysburg. And uh, certainly if, if he didn't fall where the monument is, he fell closer to the wall. Close enough for government work, Eric, is what I tell, <laughs> what, what I tell everybody. And, you know, as we talk about the wounding marker where Armstead fell, it's, I think, important for people to remember when you put it all together, Louis Armstead, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think so, is the most frequently commemorated Confederate here at the Battle of Gettysburg because we have the marker where he fell. We have the friend-to-friend memorial, Armstead and Bingham, which you were a part of that. We have the plaques that were placed at the Spangler Farm Hospital, which I think you were part of that. I don't know if I'm forgetting anything, but that's at least three or four, which nobody else in the Army of Northern Virginia at Gettysburg can attest to. So any stories or anything you want to share as far as the friend-to-friend or anything that they've done out at the uh, Spangler Farm? Yeah, sure, Jim. And let's remember, there's also a monument at the head of the lane of the Spangler Farm for the Armstead-Hancock relationship. So Armstead gets a lot of press, and you're right, I was part of, I wasn't the instigator of a lot of that. I got to be part of all that in the friend-to-friend Masonic Memorial, which shows that's based on a real story. You've got Captain Henry Bingham of the staff of Hancock. You've got Armstead lying there being wounded. That's there. So I just think of all the officers, you know, he dies right at the forefront of this attack. So when you think of the 19th century ethos of brave soldier going forward, forward. This is what people recognize. Armstead is the epitome of that. He really is. And I think that's why he gets a lot of this play that we all see today. And I believe, you know, the legacy of General Armstead is that he would have very much appreciated that because he always wanted to be known for being right up front. He, he wrote one time to the government when he was seeking a promotion and he said if, this, if the, the commanding general of the army did not remember him because Armstead had fought in the Mexican War, he said he would abide his time and wait for war 
war where he would hope that the officers would not feel that he is unworthy, that he would be worthy of such a such a promotion. So to Lewis Armstead, bravery in combat was always the number one characteristic that an officer should have. And I think the legacy that he has here, he would have been well pleased, no matter how we want to interpret it. Uh, some people would not want to interpret that way, but I just think he, he himself, that's the way he would want to rem- be remembered. And Mrs. Hancock believed when she wrote in 1887 that he died in the way that he had lived, that he, she believed that he had actually sought death in that manner. Uh, If you remember some of the quotes from that, we don't know that to be true, but I think Armstead would have been pleased that the legacy that he now has dying at the head of his troops, being mortally wounded for this cause in which he believed. So we have to put the context in there for what were, what were his thoughts at that particular time. And in some respects too, he's the perfect Confederate officer to be remembered by Union veterans. It's the ultimate moment of this battle. It's the most famous moment, but it's also in a failed attack. So the Union is victorious. We can honor his bravery, but it's not like he's routing the Union line and breaking this thing wide open and the Confederates are on their way to a victory. It kind of fits perfect with that. It's everything they would want, as opposed to some other Confederate officers that maybe are not as likable or in a scenario that would have fit with a lot of the Union veterans' sort of thoughts of the period. Yeah, Eric, I think that's pretty interesting. So you have to ask yourself, you know, Armstead's family tried to get the marker up here. They said no. And then there's a huge fight between uh, Pickett's group and the Gettysburg Battlefield Memorial Association. And basically the 72nd Pennsylvania survivors and people come in and say, look, we'll support you. Armstead should have a marker there. And the question is why? And I think it's not because they like Lewis Armstead as a Confederate officer. They want to show they defeated this attack. And they want to show this is how close it got inside Union lines. It got all the way up to year. And we defeated defeated it. And of course, for our purposes, Armstead gets memorialized. And I guess it doesn't matter why, but I think the context behind it is really, really pretty interesting there. I think the the survivors of the 72nd Pennsylvania want to clearly show, look, this is how far they got and we beat them on July 3rd. So Wayne, as we would have expected, this has been fantastic. You know, when when I've had the honor and the privilege of working with Wayne Motts on the Pickett's Charge book, on Pickett's Charge programs, I have said repeatedly, and I will say it again, I think Wayne Motts is the country's foremost expert on Pickett's Charge. And obviously that applies to General Lewis Armstead. So we can't thank you enough for uh, coming out here today and taking your time to uh, sit with us and, and, and tell us some stories. But in addition to being a battlefield guide, you are also CEO of the National Civil War Museum up in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. Anything you want to tell us about that's that's going on up there right now? Jim, first of all, let me thank you. Let me thank Eric for having me here today. I'm honored you chose to have me here, and I appreciate those comments very much. I, I'm just a man that's gotten to do what he wanted to do every day of his life <laughs> in his professional career, and I'm just honored to do it. I am the chief executive officer up at the National Civil War Museum in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. I would ask all the listeners, you know, go on Facebook, like us, follow the activities of the museum, check the website, and next time you're at Gettysburg, make that little jaunt 39 miles north, or when you're coming to Gettysburg, 65,000 square feet, one of the largest museums in the country related to the American Civil War. And it's my privilege and honor to lead the the group up there for my professional career. It's got a fantastic collection, fantastic interpretation there. And I appreciate the moment you give me here to talk about it because going to work for me is just a, a real pleasure every single day. Appreciate that. Once again, Wayne, thanks for coming out. And I can certainly echo the museum in Harrisburg. If you've never been, I urge you to go. It is one of the finest museums of the American Civil War anywhere in the United States. You're going to see some things 
things you're not going to see anywhere else, and they do a wonderful job of interpreting one of the most important moments in our nation's history. And Wayne, you've played a big role in doing that and really moving this museum forward. So we want to thank you for that, and thank you for being here with us on the Battle of Gettysburg podcast. Well, thanks so much, Eric. I appreciate it. Thanks to all the listeners, and you've given me more credit than I deserve. You know, you're only the best when you work with the best. And I want to thank the team up at the National Civil War Museum that spend every waking hour working on advancing the mission of the museum. And we need social studies education, history education in this country. And I don't want to get off on that, but we've got about 12% of high school seniors graduating in this country that are proficient in American history. We've got a war going on right now, and it's for the hearts and minds of social studies and history education in this country. And we need to fight that every day. This podcast is fighting it. And I'm going to tell you, we spend every waking hour up at the National Civil War Museum trying to figure out how can we get people interested in America's past. And I'm just glad to be part of what I think is the solution, education through our our mission at the museum and showing of artifacts. Don't think we could say it any better, Jim or I ourselves. So wonderful job, Wayne. And once again, thanks for being here. Thanks, my friend. Eric, I think since this is a bonus episode, and I'll tell you, Wayne was even better than advertised. I mean, I think because it was such an awesome episode. I think such a special episode calls for a double dipping of the Dan Sickles report. A bonus Sickles report for a bonus episode? A bonus Sickles report. Now, as Wayne was talking about Armstead's uncle defending Fort McHenry, I did not want to, you know, disrupt the flow of Wayne's story, but I would be remiss if I didn't point out, you know, Fort McHenry... Star-Spangled Banner, Francis Scott Key, Philip Barton Key, Dan Sickles shoots him like a dog. And I think that would be the bonus episode of the Dan Sickles Report. Shoots him like a dog. We all know Key deserved it. He was asking for it. Perhaps. Hey, people say we never disagree on the podcast. We've just had a disagreement here. Well, I think, yeah, you know, probably shooting him. Let me back up. I would never shoot a dog, but, you know, Key, he deserved it. I'd shoot Key before I shoot a dog. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So, and I think, again, at some point we will do a very special murder of Philip Barton Key episode. So, folks, look for that in the future, but not tonight. All right, folks. Well, this is a special edition of the Battle of Gettysburg podcast. From time to time, we'll throw together these special bonus episodes with other guides, other historians to talk about areas of interest that they have that maybe we might not be able to give the deep dive into in the course of an episode. So once again, want to thank you for listening. You can find us on social media, on Facebook at the Battle of Gettysburg podcast. You can also find us on Twitter at Gettysburg Pod, all one word. And you can also find us on Instagram at the Battle of Gettysburg Podcast. You can also email us at Gettysburg Podcast, all one word, at gmail.com. So once again, I am licensed battlefield guide Eric Lindblade. He is licensed battlefield guide Jim Hessler. And we want to thank you for listening to the Battle of Gettysburg Podcast.